Our Bible reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We commence at the 12th verse. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have te- testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those that have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we have of all people, most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruit, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptised for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ, Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Here ends our reading. All right. All right, good morning everyone. It is great to be here. We have already prayed, so we're going to get straight underway with this terrific passage. And as we do, you would have noticed, I think, one of the things about the way people live in our society, which is different to the way people have lived in previous generations, and that is that some people really just live in the moment. Carpe diem, seize the day, suck the marrow out of life, all that sort of gear. 
And uh, there is something to being really present in the moment, isn't there? About enjoying today for just what it is. But I wonder if you feel that the sentiment of living in the moment is now at the expense of any kind of thought for the future. Now, some people live like that because they're convinced that this life is all there is. I remember seeing comments on a Sydney Morning Herald website, um, you know, just the sort of standard atheist quotes saying things like, there is nothing else. We live, we die. Once we die, we disintegrate into the atoms that made us. No more, no less. And I think you see a peculiarly manly expression of this idea and just the prevalence of health food stores that are kind of shot up everywhere and just the vast numbers of folks who exercise here. And I think that's good. Like, it's good to be healthy, isn't it? It's good to have bodies that work. Although whenever I hear someone say, man, that's sugar, that's poison, I do want to say, have you tasted poison? (laughs) Like, come on. Obviously, it's good to be healthy, isn't it? But I... um, I wonder if what is driving some folks to be so healthy is just the idea that this life is all there is. Like, I've got to treat my body as a temple. I've got to care for it, protect it, look after it, worship it, because it's all I've got. It's all there is. There will be some folks who live for today for far less philosophical reasons. You know, not necessarily convinced that there is no God and that once we die, we disintegrate into the atoms that made us, but they're just having too much fun to think about anything beyond today. And it's not just young folks, older folks are a bit like this too. You know, in the past, a generation of parents would work hard, save hard, because they wanted to leave their kids with an inheritance so that life might be just a little bit easier for their kids. I mean, if they were really well off, they might have taken one, you know, big overseas holiday once they retired, but that'd be about it because. They wanted to leave some money for their kids, but these days some older folks just kind of want to burn through all their cash and they don't really care about what happens to their children. So you see them, I mean, they're called grey nomads, aren't they? They just go caravanning relentlessly around the continent and when they've stopped going this way, they kind of go this way. Or, you know, it's just the never-ending cruise ships, whatever it is. (laughs) You know, people used to say, you know, you can't take it with you and and that was... uh, an encouragement not to spend all your money on yourself, but to be generous with it, because you can't take it to heaven. But now people say you can't take it with you as an encouragement to really spend it all on yourself before you die, because this life is all there is. And the chances are that you and I are exactly the same as that. Now, I mention all of these things because some of the Corinthian Christians were thinking and living in the exact same way. They believed there was no resurrection from the dead. Uh, Not in bodily form. In other words, they did not think that once they died, they would be raised to life in bodily form with Jesus in heaven. They just thought this life was all there is. There was no resurrection, and it led to kind of selfish and sinful living. I mean, have a look at the little motto that the Apostle Paul quotes in your Bibles there, verse 32. He says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Man, isn't that a motto for our age? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We're in, uh, in the middle of a short little series that we're doing that's called Rise, uh, looking at the resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15 and 16 in between our commitment series and um, that other thing that's happening at the other end called Christmas, which I understand is coming. I read that somewhere. Uh, and so today we're going to discover what's at stake if there is no resurrection and also how Jesus' resurrection from the dead means that there is life to come for all who trust in him. 
You might remember last week we saw how Jesus' resurrection was real, uh, certain. But this week we see how the reality of his resurrection from the dead guarantees that all Christians will also rise from the dead. So firstly for today, what is at stake if there is no resurrection from the dead? Lots, as it turns out from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's lots if we live and then die and then disintegrate into the atoms that made us. And the Apostle Paul kind of fires off a whole bunch of reasons about what's at stake. It's almost overwhelming uh, if there is no resurrection of the dead, as some of the Corinthian Christians were arguing in verse 12. We're going to go through them. We're going to go through them rapid fire. So buckle your seatbelts and let's crack along. In verse 13, if there is no resurrection from the dead, That means that not even Jesus has been raised from the dead. So before you Corinthians decide for sure that there's no resurrection from the dead, just you need to know, he's saying, that that means that that Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead either. Now that could be a problem, couldn't it? Especially as we looked at last week, that there were over 500 people who saw him raised from the dead in bodily form, (laughs) physically. I mean, they, they, they weren't all having hallucinations. They weren't all making it up. They weren't all dreaming. And like I said last week, what do you do with that? Over 500 people who saw him. Secondly, verse 14, uh, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then their faith and the apostles' preaching is in vain. Their faith is for nothing. It doesn't work if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. It's pointless. It's ineffective. Uh, Moving along quickly, even worse than the apostles preaching, being for nothing, verse 15, that actually be lying about God or misrepresenting God if there was no resurrection from the dead because at the heart of their message is the good news about the death and resurrection of Jesus. So being truthful about God is at stake. Now that's no small thing. Next, if the dead are not raised, then... Jesus has not been raised. Verse 17, our faith is for nothing and we remain unforgiven in our sins. Well, that's kind of a big deal. You remember what we saw last week is that if Jesus stayed dead, we just couldn't say for certain that he died for our sins. He could just be another dead guy who thought he was special and then who died. If Jesus didn't rise, that means that God didn't definitively give his stamp of approval about Jesus' death as full and sufficient payment for the penalty for our sins. So if there's no resurrection from the dead, then we're still unforgiven and we're still in our sins. That's kind of a big deal. Well, that's what's at stake. And verse 18, all those who have already died, those Corinthian Christians who have fallen asleep, as Paul puts it poetically here, they're also unforgiven. And because they have died, they don't even have some future opportunity or chance to be forgiven. So it's no small thing to believe that there is no resurrection from the dead, which is what the Corinthian Christians were arguing. And it might very well be what you believe in your heart this very morning. Oscar Wilde, he was a kind of a crazy, strange um, playwright. And he um, wrote a one-act play called Salome. And it was originally written in French. And, and the play uh, tells the story, the, the Bible story actually, of Salome. Uh, You remember she was Herod's stepdaughter, King Herod's stepdaughter, and she requested the severed head of John the Baptist after she danced for Herod at a boozy kind of banquet. And uh, in the play, there's this scene where a Pharisee and a Sadducee 
and some Nazarenes and some other Jews are having a conversation with Herod and his wife Herodias. And they're all discussing this Messiah from Galilee and he, who's turned water into wine and who heals lepers and heals the blind. And Herod is just sort of disinterested until the point where it transpires that this so-called Messiah also raised Jairus' daughter from the dead and that he's interested. And in fact, more than interested, he's troubled and he's irritated and he's agitated and he says these words, let them find him, that's this Messiah, and tell him from me, King Herod, I will not allow him to raise the dead, to change water into wine, to heal lepers, to heal the blind. He may do these things if he will. I say nothing against these things in truth. I hold it a good deed to heal a leper, but I allow no man to raise the dead. It would be terrible if the dead came back. You see, he's completely unstuck, isn't he? Would be terrible, wouldn't it, if the dead came back and you were responsible for the beheading of an innocent and godly man like John the Baptist? It would be terrible if the dead came back, but you thought we simply disintegrated into the atoms that made us no more and no less. It would be terrible if the dead came back, but you lived your life like this day was all there was, and you just lived in the moment. If you spent all your chips on the here and now, carpe diem, seize the day, suck the marrow out of this life, and were completely unprepared for eternity. Well, yes, in that case, it would be terrible. But it is not terrible if you are a Christian. For those who are Christians, it's entirely the opposite. It would be entirely terrible if the dead did not come back, if the dead were not raised to life. And so in verse 19, the Apostle Paul says, that's exactly right. If our Christian hope is just for this life, just for today, just for here and now, we are in the most pitiful situation we really are. I mean, just think of the Apostle Paul how much he suffered for being a Christian. You know, he said there in the passage that was read to us, he faces faces danger every hour, faces death every day, fights wild beasts. In other words, he endures great opposition in Ephesus. I mean, just think about how we are pilloried in the mainstream press or dismissed as dinosaurs on the wrong side of history think of how some of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world suffer for their faith even dying for it this very day if our hope is just for this life and this life is full of suffering and persecution for being christian what a pitiful situation that is what a pitiful group of people we are if our hope is just for this life alone And so you see that much is at stake if we say there is no resurrection of the dead, that this life is all there is, that we live and then die and then disintegrate into the atoms that made us. It is not a throwaway line, as the Corinthians were suggesting, to say there is no resurrection from the dead. Our whole faith crumbles. And as we'll see later on, our Christian living, our godliness will also crumble. Much is at stake if we argue that there's no resurrection from the dead. And uh, really, I think that's why it's so delightful, actually, when we move from verses 12 to 19, that first section, which is all about what's at stake, to verse 20 to 23, which assures us, secondly for today, that Jesus' resurrection guarantees our own resurrection from the dead. That's the second thing for today. So read along with me, verses 20 to 23 where the Apostle Paul says with great confidence, but Christ has indeed 
been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. You know, the people that we brush up with against daily, maybe even yourself, certainly some of the Corinthians were arguing there's no resurrection from the dead. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead physically and bodily, and Paul can say that with great confidence. And most importantly for us today, Jesus' definite, definitive resurrection from the dead is what guarantees our resurrection from the dead as well. You remember the one-line summary from last week is that Jesus certainly, most assuredly, rose from the dead. Well, the one-line phrase that pays for this week is that Jesus' resurrection from the dead guarantees our own resurrection from the dead as well. It's interesting when we prepare families for baptisms, we work our way through the Apostles' Creed. That's the, the song we sung first up this morning. There's a line at the end which says, I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. And sometimes I'll ask them, what do you think that means? And most people say, oh, that's talking about Jesus' resurrection. But actually, the Apostles' Creed has already covered Jesus' resurrection in the line which says he rose again on the third day. When it says, I believe in the resurrection of the body, it's talking about our own bodies. Jesus' resurrection from the dead on the third day is what guarantees our own resurrection from the dead. His resurrection from the dead is like a deposit. A deposit that means you get the house. His resurrection from the dead is like the ticket. The ticket that says you can come into the concert or the movie. Paul says that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is like the first fruits of all Christians who have fallen asleep or died. And and you and I, we don't really come across this idea of first fruits very often um, these days because as far as we know, milk doesn't come from cows and uh, fruit doesn't come from trees, bread doesn't come from grain, everything comes from Woolworths, isn't that right? They're the fresh food people. I, uh, I heard a story that, I don't know if it's true, but I heard a story, um, that the average age of an apple that you buy from Woolworths is nine months. It sits in cold storage for nine months. I mean, no one knows how to keep food fresh for nine months in cold storage like Woolworths do. They really are the fresh food people, aren't they? But before food grew, or should I say grew up in uh, supermarkets, people lived off the land. must have been a wonderful time when milk came from cows and fruit came from trees and bread came from stuff that grew out of the ground. And in those days, farmers would work very hard during the the sowing season, I should say, preparing their fields, uh, sowing the grain, tending the trees, and then they would wait and watch with great enthusiasm and eagerness and impatience for those first heads of wheat to kind of burst through the baking soil or the first buds of fruit to start forming off the branches. And when the first fruits were ripe and ready for harvest, what a great day because that guaranteed that the rest of the harvest would follow. And actually, Israelite farmers would bring the very the first fruits of their crops to offer to God. But those first fruits were the guarantee that a harvest full of grain 
or a harvest full of fruit was on its way. And so when the Apostle Paul says that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits, what he is saying is that our resurrection from the dead is guaranteed. It's inevitable. It's certain. It will happen. And of course, uh, you might ask the question, how will it happen? What will our resurrection be like? Well, that's the question for next week, so you're going to have to come back to find out about that. But if you were to ask the question, why does it happen? Well, the answer is in verses 21 to 23 that we just read. It's a great parallel uh, between death coming through Adam and life being made alive, being resurrected, coming through Jesus. You see, in both cases, the consequences of one man's actions flow through to affect the many. When Adam brought sin into the world through his first act of disobedience, death came through a man. The actions of the one man, Adam, bring death to the many. But with the resurrection of Christ from the dead also comes through one man, Jesus. Now, it's not completely symmetrical, but in both cases, the actions of the one affect the many. In Adam, we die. In Christ, those of us who belong to him will be resurrected. And it must be that way. It must be that way because Jesus must conquer every enemy, everything that stands opposed to God, including death, the final enemy of us all. If we're not raised from the dead, then death still has power over us. It still has the victory over us. It still holds us down. So not only must Jesus rise from the dead, but so must we if he is to destroy the enemy of death for all time and put all his enemies under his feet in triumph. So that's the why question. And perhaps the last question for today is when? When is this all going to happen? When will we be raised from the dead? And the answer is there in verses 22 to 24 in your Bible. So have a look and read along with me. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the first fruits, and then when he comes, all who belong to him. And then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, all authority, all power. When will you and I be raised from the dead? When Jesus comes back before the end of everything, Christ, the first fruits of the resurrection, well, Jesus has already been made alive. But then in verse 23, all those of us who belong to him will have our turn rising physically and bodily when he comes back. And that will happen just before the end when Jesus has triumphed over all things and gives it all back to God who is to be praised forevermore. Amen. But did you notice the question is not, Will we be raised from the dead? It's not an if question. It really is a when question. When will we be raised from the dead? Which means that if you are a Christian here this morning, you will not miss out. You will not miss out. You will not be left behind at the return of Jesus. Your resurrection from the dead is guaranteed. And can I humbly and respectfully say, if you don't know that hope, my goodness, what is holding you back this morning? Really? Our resurrection from the dead happens because those in Christ must share in his victory. And it must happen before the end when Jesus hands everything over to God the Father. And so that's the when question. And as we stop to think about what that means for us now, 
Actually, there is a final question, isn't there? And that's the so what question. So what? What does it mean for us now? Well, I think for those for whom death is close or close-ish, there is great comfort and there is great hope. You know, all of us who are Christians here have a glorious future to look forward to. What this means is that no Christian person is ever really in their twilight years. Do you know that? No Christian person is ever in a situation where there is more that has gone before than lies ahead. For every Christian person, there is always more that lies ahead than has gone before. Did you know that? For those of us who feel that physical death is a long way off, you actually need, well, we actually need to stop for a moment because what we've said here is monumental. You know, death conquers all of us, physical death, there's not a circle of life. If anything, there's a circle of death. One out of every one person will die. But what we have seen here today is not only that Jesus has conquered death by rising from the dead, nor even that we might have a chance to share in it. What we have seen today is that if you belong in Jesus, if you are in Christ, you will be made alive. You will share in Jesus' victory. You will conquer death alongside him. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead and you will follow him. And that is guaranteed. I mean, think about the stuff we get excited about. Our team wins. Our favourite artist releases a new album. We go on a holiday. All good things. But lift your eyes. Do you know what he's saying here? We will conquer death. You should be dancing in the aisles this very second. Hallelujah. We will conquer death alongside Jesus. Absolute certainty of our resurrection based on Jesus' resurrection ought to be a cause for extraordinary joy. And I know you're all dancing on the inside right now. <laughs> Let me also say the absolute certainty of our resurrection based on Jesus' definite resurrection is also cause for great service and godly living. There's no resurrection from the dead then the motto of our world, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, is very true. If there's no resurrection from the dead, you should eat and you should drink and you should treat your body as a temple and you should caravan around this continent perpetually because tomorrow you will just disintegrate into the atoms that you are made from. If there's no resurrection from the dead, why live in obedience to Jesus? Because he's just dead too and so he doesn't really care. And that will just detract from getting the most out of this life. And why would you stick your neck out for Jesus if it won't get you anything in this life apart from suffering? It won't get you anything in the next life at all. And do you know what's funny? Whenever Christians deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus, that's exactly what happens. They just start to live for this world and Christian ethic goes out the window. I mean, why serve beyond your family and yourself if there's no resurrection from the dead? Why would the Apostle Paul have battled horrendously in preaching the good news in that town of Ephesus in a world that was repeatedly trying to kill him and if there's no resurrection from the dead why would you ever want to teach Sunday school you know our, our church has been growing all year which is great that means there's more kids all year which is great that means we need kind of more leaders which is also great and you might be somebody who wants to step into the breach there which would also be great but why would you do that there was no resurrection from the dead. Why would you teach ESL? Why would you serve people? 
The absolute certainty of our resurrection based on Jesus' resurrection gives us cause for great service and it gives us cause for godly living. And I would commend both of those things to us all. But finally, the resurrection means that we can get off the merry-go-round that is life on the northern beaches. And I say merry-go-round because by and large, life in this part of the world is a lot of fun, isn't it? Especially at this time of year. But it's dizzying and it's disorienting in its busyness. And there are so many things on offer that some of us who claim to believe in the resurrection live as though this life is all there is. And we're frantic desperately trying to do everything because we're so scared of missing out (laughs) and the truth is in being so busy ironically we actually do miss out because you can't listen to the voice of God if you're on a merry-go-round and you can't serve other people or encourage them or benefit other people if you're so focused on getting the most out of this life yourself you know folks that this world in its present form is like a company that is guaranteed to go bankrupt and bust. Some of us here are investing everything in something that is guaranteed to go bust. Now, if there is no resurrection from the dead, by all means, go for it. In fact, go harder. I don't even know what you're doing in church this morning because you don't want to miss out on anything. But boy, you'd want to be sure, wouldn't you? But Christ has indeed been raised, the first fruits of the resurrection, and his resurrection guarantees yours if you are in Christ. And and rather than making you desperately and frantically grasp at everything in this life, it actually opens up the way for assurance. It opens up the way for sacrificial service. It opens up the way for godly living. Friends, Christ has risen, and so shall we. So let us live for him. And why don't you join with me in praying just that right now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for raising Jesus from the dead. And we have seen this morning that his resurrection guarantees our own resurrection. Impress that upon our minds, impress that upon our hearts and let it change our lives. We want to be people who can approach the end of our physical life with joy. We want to be people who live present in the moment, but beyond the moment as well. We want to be people whose lives are characterised by sacrificial service and godly living. And the resurrection makes all these things possible. And so, Lord, let us live in light of Jesus' resurrection and our own. For his glory, we pray these things. Amen.